Okay, we've been studying through the book of Exodus, and we're up to uh, Exodus partway through chapter 13. And what we've what what's been covered so far is that the the Hebrews have been in Egypt for 400 years now, suffering under Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron announced 10 plagues that come in succession on Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to release the people. In the previous lesson, we went through the final plague, the death of the firstborn males from every household, and it was to be observed by the Jews every year after that in a Passover observance. We went through the details of the Passover, selecting one lamb without blemish from each household, uh, the blood of the lamb uh, put on the, the door frames of the house, and uh, roasting it over the fire, eating it in haste with bitter herbs, and through all the other details about how all this is foreshadowing what would happen with Jesus and his passion, death, crucifixion, 1,400 years later. And with the first, the death of the firstborn, there is wailing throughout Egypt, from, and Pharaoh now commands that the Jews depart, taking their livestock with them, as well as the gold and silver and clothing from the Egyptians. And so the Jews are departing. But uh, there are further twists in the plot before they they escape. Uh, We had some questions after last week's class, and on Wednesday nights we like to um, throw out a question on something that we can all wrestle with to sharpen our own thinking and understanding of Scripture. And the question that came up with uh, was, uh, uh, Jessica asked the question, uh, were the Israelites being deceitful and asking for a loan of, of, of articles of clothing and gold and silver when they knew they wouldn't be returning? So we, we kicked that around, had a very robust discussion on that point. And I always want to encourage Everyone is uh, think about what we're reading and wrestle with these things and look for answers in the scriptures. Um, the uh, so let's pick it up. The the tenth plague is concluded. We're going to read in Exodus chapter thirteen, starting in verse seventeen. I'm reading from the Orthodox Study Bible, uh, which is based on the Septuagint. So let's start Exodus chapter thirteen. In verse 17, I'm going to read from there to the end of the chapter. It says, Thus, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the desert to the Red Sea. And in the fifth generation, the children of Israel went up from the land of Egypt. Now Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham by the desert. Moreover, God led them by day in a pillar of cloud to show them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire. Thus the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before all the people. Uh, So the journey begins and the people are taking an unusual route out of Egypt. They don't go the normal way to get out of Egypt. And instead they go, it says, instead of going by the... um, 
the 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 normal way, the shorter route by the the uh, the way of the land of the Philistines. Instead, they take a more southerly route, headed toward the Red Sea. And Pharaoh later concludes, "Ah, these people are wandering around. They don't know where they're going, so I'm going to chase them down." Um, and the Lord says here, the reason for not going the normal route is perhaps the people will change their minds when they see war and will turn back. Now, when I'm teaching the book of, of Exodus and the rest of the Exodus journey, going through the wilderness, the Sinai Peninsula, uh, a lot of times I will use a map that shows the route or the possible routes that the people take. And I was reading a book called, uh, this is it right here, I was reading this book, Israel in Egypt, just to get some more background on the story of Egypt. And it was by an, it was by an Egyptologist who's also a, uh, a believer, a Christian. And uh, so he's explaining some of the things as an archaeologist who's worked in Egypt that he's learned over time. And uh, some of the things I found interesting, one of the things he said was, you have to be aware the topography of Egypt is very different now than it was over 3,000 years ago. So he was excavating in one area, and he realized there were lots of seashells very close to the surface, and he realized, oh, this, is, this was obviously part of the Mediterranean Sea in the past. So the coastline was very different in the northern part of Egypt than what it is today. And... Uh, he was pointing out some things that were different. First of all, the coastline of the Mediterranean was quite a bit different. And the other thing was along the eastern frontier of Egypt, between Egypt and Sinai, in ancient times there was a very large canal. And very large, this is, this, it was 70 meters across. And to give you an idea, this is bigger. When the French finally built the, uh, the, the Suez Canal in the late 1800s, uh, this was not as big as this ancient canal was in a different location. So, um, And so between going across the eastern frontier, there was a large canal between Egypt proper and Sinai that was running north-south. And on the north side, the coastline was different, but on the north side there was a main road heading north out of Egypt that was running on high ground with marshes or lakes on either side of it. And this is the normal route. However, it was guarded by a series of forts, including one rather massive ancient fort. So uh, this is uh, from James Hoffmeyer's Israel in Egypt. Uh, so the author was making the point it makes perfect sense why the Lord would say they don't go the way of the Philistines because you'll see war and want to turn back. They, they go through this narrow, constrained area by major fortresses, and uh, so that wouldn't, that wouldn't be uh, the way to go. So uh, they, they face the fort, and also Pharaoh's army could overtake them on land, even going through the Sinai. The other thing which is to keep in mind here is the plan was not for them to go to Canaan first. It was when God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, he said that one of the signs would be that the people would come back to Mount Sinai when he led them out of Egypt and worshiped there. And of course, Sinai is to the south. So they're taking a southerly route. They're not actually going to Canaan. They're going to go to Mount Sinai first anyway. So there's a few reasons why they took 
this different route. And then the other thing I noticed here is it says they took the bones of Joseph with them. Now, um, a little over a year ago, we were going through the book of Genesis, and the last thing in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 49, let's turn there, it talks about the bones of Joseph. And, uh, sorry, Genesis, Genesis chapter, chapter 50, starting in verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brethren, I'm about to die, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land of the land God swore to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. So this is... uh, The two things to notice here in this closing line from uh, Genesis, first of all, is that Joseph was acting basically as a prophet. He says, God is going to come and take you out of here. This is five generations, 400 years in advance. And uh, so he knew that God was going to deliver the people and bring them back to their homeland, back to Canaan. That's the first thing. The second thing was, He gave very specific instructions. In fact, he even put them under oath to make sure they would take his bones back. So the question I have is, well, why is this so important to Joseph that his bones be carried back in the future? And, uh, you know, his body is embalmed and he's died. and, And so think about that. From generation to generation to generation, going through five generations, the people are told from father to son to grandson that coffin over there contains the embalmed remains of Joseph, our forefather, one of the one of the, the forefathers of the of the tribes of Israel. And when we go back, we need to take that coffin and those bones with us. So from generation to generation, this was a reminder to the people that we're going to get out of here at some point in time, that Joseph said we would. And, and I think that there's actually more to it as well. There's, there's, it speaks about the bones of Joseph in a surprisingly large number of places in the scriptures for something you'd think is a pretty small detail. In uh, Wisdom of Sirach, it's in the it's in the the, uh, the apocrypha. It says, uh, uh, "Neither has a man like Joseph been born, the leader of his brothers and the support of his people, and they watched over his bones." So this is a it's talking about the some of the great heroes of faith that have lived in in the past. So for hundreds of years, the Jews were watching over the bones of Joseph, waiting for him to go. And then in Joshua chapter 24, we see that they not only took the bones out of Egypt and carried them around the wilderness for 40 years, but we see where they're the final disposition of his bones. In Joshua 24, in uh, verse 33, or if you have a, a Bible that's based on Masoretic text, it'd be verse 32, uh, says pretty much the same thing. It says, the children of Israel also brought up the bones of Joseph from Egypt and buried them at Shechem 
in the plot of land which Jacob purchased from the Amorites who dwelt in Shechem for 100 lambs and which was given to Joseph as his portion. So Joseph's remains were buried in Shechem, which is in the north. That's in the territory of, when they divided up the land, that's in the territory of Manasseh, Joseph's oldest son. And this is the same plot of land it talks about in Genesis 33 that Jacob purchased. So the bones of Joseph are mentioned in the New Testament as well, in a very famous chapter in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, which is famous as the great hall of heroes of faith. What does it mean to live by faith? So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Of course, we're, we're saved by faith, and Hebrews 11 talks about what that means. Faith involves several things. Faith involves obedient action when God tells us to do something. Faith involves persevering over time through hardship. Uh, this being Having real saving faith means we don't shrink back when we face challenges. And it starts off, Hebrews chapter 11 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. So faith, the kind of faith that matters, is we're hoping for something, and it's something we can't see. And verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham's, it says, by faith, when he sacrificed his son Isaac, he believed that God would raise him from the dead, because after all, God said, through, it's through Isaac that your seed will be reckoned. So God told him to kill his son. He reasoned God must be able to raise the dead. And so that he, by faith, he figured out the resurrection of the dead. And then it says about Joseph, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. Now, if you were to sum up the life of Joseph, what were the greatest things that Joseph did by faith? Um, Giving instructions about his bones might not come to the top, one of the top 10 things in your list. Joseph did a lot of amazing things during the course of his life. But uh, these are the things that are held up, the very last things in his life. It says that, that by faith, he uh, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. So what is that? what's that mean? Why is it saying that's by faith? This is written for us to help us. So he's, if faith is hoping for things that we can't see, being confident for things we're hoping for and that we can't see, well, what was Joseph, what was Joseph's faith? I mean, obviously he didn't see the return of his people, but he believed that was going to happen. So why did he care about where his bones went? What difference does it make? Um, it seems to me that Joseph was hoping for the same thing that Abraham was hoping for. Abraham was hoping that his son would be raised from the dead. And I think Joseph was too. Joseph somehow believed in the resurrection of the dead, that he figured that out. This is, this is something that we are called to be 
hopeful for as well. Why else would he care about what happened to his bones? Why would he be putting people under oath? He, he felt that something important was going to happen to his bones in the future. I mean, after all, think about this. Jesus says, an hour is coming when all those who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That's in John 5, 28, 29. So think about that. When you're passing a cemetery, think about that. Jesus says, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. The Joseph, when his bones were in Shechem, in, in, the, in the, the land where his sons and, and, and his descendants lived, that he wanted to be raised to, from the dead back in that land. Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2, it says one of the six elementary principles of the faith, along with faith, repentance, and baptism, is resurrection of the flesh, resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the dead. This is a foundational thing that we are hoping for on the end, just like Abraham and Joseph did. Uh, Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that our bodies will be physically raised from the dead and transformed. And in chapter 15, verse 35, he says, Some will ask, how are the dead raised up and with what body will they come? Foolish one. What you know, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. He continues further on. He says, so also the resurrection of the dead body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness and raised in power. Later on, he says, I tell you a mystery. This is in verses 51 to 53. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So I believe Joseph is giving instruction regarding his bones because somehow he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Some people did in the Old Testament that God would come to deliver his people and bring them back, and God will also raise his dead bones back to life again at the end. Somehow he figured that out. And, and after all, it talks about Jesus. The, the confirmation that we have that this is true is God raising Jesus up from the dead. It talks about in, in Colossians 1.18 and in Revelation 1 verse 5, it refers to Jesus as the firstborn from among the dead. Just as Jesus, his body was raised back to life after death, ours will be as well. So I believe this is embedded in the story here where Joseph gives instruction about his bones and that story is carried forward all the way to the New Testament. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of the great promise that we have, something we can't see, is that all of the dead will be raised and brought back to life and their bodies changed. 
So the other thing in this is the story here, it talks about the pillar of cloud and fire. Now, the pillar of cloud and fire leads them for 40 years all the way through the, the wilderness. It talks about that in the book of Numbers in more detail. And it said it's a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It appears only after the Passover lamb has been slain. And it says that the cloud that that led them out of the desert is described in Psalm uh, uh, 105. It's it's number one of Psalm 104 in the uh, in the Septuagint. And it says, he led them out with silver and gold, and there was not among their tribes one who was feeble. Egypt was gladdened by their exodus, for fear of, of them fell upon them. He spread a cloud as a cover for them, and a fire to give them light by night. So this was a guide and also a comfort, a cloud to cover them, protect them, and, and a pillar of fire to guide them and to give them light in the darkness at night. Um, in Wisdom of Solomon, it talks a little more about this. Also, in chapter 10, verse 17, it talks about how they were guided by the wisdom of the Lord. And it says that they were guided in a marvelous way. And it became for them a shelter by day and a flame of stars by night. In chapter 18, <clears throat> of uh, Wisdom of Solomon, verses 2 and 3, it says, Your holy ones did not harm those who previously wronged them. So they were thankful and begged for grace for being at variance with them. Therefore you provided a flaming pillar of fire as a guide for their unknown journey and a harmless sun in their glorious exile. So this is a, a beautiful picture of the pillar of cloud and fire that guided them all the way through their journey. Um, let's continue in Exodus chapter 14. <clears throat> we'll talk more about that a little later. About the pillar. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 14, I want to read verses 1 to 12. So this is the, the Egyptians now start pursuing the Israelites, and the Israelites have some second thoughts about this plan of escape. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp at the village between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephyrin. You shall camp before them by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The desert will close them in. Then I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and he'll pursue them. I'll be glorified in Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know I am the Lord. So they did. Now it was told the king of Egyptians that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? Why have we let Israel go from us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. Thus the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his servants, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the cavalry and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the village opposite Baal Zephyrin. Now when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. 
So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the desert? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So, uh, so Pharaoh's aware that the Israelites are wandering around in the land, apparently aimlessly, and they're getting trapped in by the sea. Uh, they're closed in by the desert. His heart is hardened. He decides to pursue them. He gets his army ready, including his chariots. The Egyptians look back and they see the army. I'm sorry, the Israelites look back. They see the army of the Egyptians pursuing them. And they feel completely trapped and helpless. They're afraid. They cry out to the Lord and they blame Moses. And they say, Moses, didn't we tell you, leave us alone that we can just be content as slaves in Egypt? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone so we could serve the Egyptians? And they're convinced that they're going to end up being slaughtered in the desert. And they say, it would have been better to serve the Egyptians than to die in this desert. So uh, they're, they're dejected and they're blaming Moses for what happens here. Uh, Let's continue the story in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Then Moses said to the people, Be of good courage. Stand still and see the Lord's salvation, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you seem to see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now lift up your rod. And stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And let the children of Israel go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. I indeed will harden Pharaoh's heart and all the Egyptians. And they will go in after them. So I will be glorified in Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots, and his horses. Then the Egyptians will know I am the Lord when I am glorified upon Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horses. Now the angel Lord who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud also went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And the night passed, but there was such darkness and blackness, they did not come near one another all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord carried back the sea by a strong south wind all that night and made the sea dry ground. Thus the water was divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch, the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. He troubled the army of the Egyptians. He bound the axles of their chariot wheels and caused them to proceed with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let's flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and riders. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were trying to flee. 
But the Lord shook off the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all of Pharaoh's army that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. The waters were a wall to them on their right hand and their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the Lord's mighty hand and the things he did to the Egyptians. Therefore the people feared the Lord and believed God and his servant Moses. So uh, so Moses starts off, the people are complaining, and Moses starts off by reassuring the people that God somehow or other is going to save them and God will fight for them. And the Lord then gives Moses instruction, lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea. The Lord sends a strong wind all that night, drives back the sea. The angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud relocate. Now notice they're not the same thing. It speaks of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, which throughout the scriptures is, is generally refers to the Son of God or the Word of God, and the, the pillar. So all three are mentioned here. Uh, all three are involved in this crossing. So the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud relocate and go behind the Israelites and stand between them and the Egyptians all that night. The Egyptians are cast in darkness and, and don't dare approach the Israelites. Israel crosses on dry ground with a wall of water on the left and the right. And uh, the Egyptians pursue their axles of their chariots get stuck and they start to fear that the Lord is fighting against them. Moses, after the Israelites cross, stretches out his hand again. The water returns, covers the Egyptians, and Israel looks back and sees the dead bodies of the Egyptians lined up on the shore. And the people fear God and believe in Moses from that point forward. So a couple of questions. There are many ways that God could have decimated the armies of Egypt and delivered his people out of Egypt. Why did the Lord choose this rather unusual way? I'm going to read from Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 18, verses 5 to 8, where it talks about why did God do it this way? Now, there's more than one answer, but I think this, is, uh, this provides one, one aspect of this. Wisdom of Solomon, in chapter 18, if you don't have it in your Bible, uh, that was in the original King James Bible, uh, and then got taken out in the uh, last hundred years or so. Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 5 to 8. When they resolved to kill the babies of your holy ones, and one child was exposed and rescued, you took away as a rebuke a multitude of their children. And you destroyed them together in violent water. The night was made known beforehand to our fathers, so they might rejoice with sure knowledge in the oaths they trusted, the salvation of the righteous and the destruction of enemies. For you punished our enemies 
with the same means by which you called and glorified us. So, uh, basically, God has a sense of timing and payback that he punishes the Egyptians with the same means by which they sinned. And think about this if we go back to the beginning of the story of of Exodus. The, The Egyptians... Pharaoh is tell, is killing the Egyptian baby boys and and issuing an edict that all the male boys be cast into the river and drowned. And God pays them back in kind in three different ways. First of all, the first the first miracle, the first plague is turning the water of the Nile to blood and making it undrinkable. Second, it's by killing the firstborn of the children of the Egyptians in the last plague. And then finally, by destroying the sons of Egypt by drowning their army in the water. So the story begins in Exodus with the Egyptians drowning the Israelite babies. And the story closes as they're departing Egypt with God paying them back 80 years later by destroying their own sons and their mighty army, by drowning it in the water. Uh, So I think that's one one of the reasons, is that God is explaining to people, you're not going to get away with anything. The very means that you use to sin, I'm going to turn back on you and bring about righteousness and justice at the right time. I have a question we have uh, in our group here. Uh, we have many of us, most of us, are coming from a Church of Christ background. And if there's one teaching that the churches of Christ are famous for, most famous for, it's baptism. And if I asked you the question, what is the first example, this is a trick question, I'll tell you right now, what's the first example of baptism in the scriptures? Now, most people would think, oh, the first example of baptism, maybe that's the Ethiopian eunuch for one person, in Acts 8, or maybe that's the 3,000 baptized on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's the first first examples of baptism. But I didn't say specifically Christian baptism, I just said baptism. Other people might think, well, wait a minute now, in the Gospels it talks about baptism because Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and there's references to many people coming and John the Baptist baptizing, preaching a baptism of repentance in the wilderness even before the time of Jesus. So some people go back to the Gospels and say, well, that's the first example of baptism. If you ask people in the early church what was the first example of baptism, they're reading the, word, the, the, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and in the story in 2 Kings chapter 5 is the story of Naaman, the Syrian who has leprosy, and, and Elisha the prophet tells him to go and dip, dunk himself seven times in the Jordan River. And in, in the Greek, that's the, that's the first place in the Bible the word baptize appears. So he is actually baptized. The same word is in the New Testament, in the Greek Old Testament. He's, he's baptizing himself in the Jordan River. So uh, so you could say that that was the first example of a baptism because the word baptize is used it there. However, Paul points to an even earlier example of baptism, even earlier than that. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and read the first two verses. 
What's the first baptism in Scripture? Paul's writing to the Corinthian Christians. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual uh, food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So, uh, Paul says all our forefathers, the Jews, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious there he's referring to, he's alluding to the same, using the same kind of language that Jesus uses in John 3, verses 3 to 5. He says, you can't, uh, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again of water and the Spirit. He says they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea. So the, the cloud obviously is representing the Spirit. The water is representing baptism. They were all baptized in the cloud and the sea and the water and the Spirit. So this is 1,400 years before Jesus. We have Paul points to this and saying all those people were baptized. They had a wall of water on the left. They have a wall of water on the right. It's deep. The water's deep enough to drown the Egyptians, so obviously it's over their heads. So they're, sur they're literally surrounded by water. Somehow they're walking, they're walking through on dry ground. But they're surrounded by water, which is over their heads. Um, and in what way is crossing the Red Sea like a baptism? Well, not only that it's involving water, but also this is the only way the people can get out of Egypt, and Egypt represents the land of the kingdom of darkness. This is the land of spiritual slavery. Pharaoh is, a fort, is representing Satan. He does not want to let his people go. He's a murderer and a liar. And Egypt is the land of darkness. It's the world. And there's only one way to get out of the world. It's by passing through the water. It was the start of their journey. It was the beginning of a new life. But after they went through the water, they were not yet at their destination. They were about to enter a time of trials and testing. And only those who were faithful to the end, like Joshua and Caleb, and the next generation would make it to their destination, the promised land, which is, which is uh, representing heaven. Uh, so two things happened in this story in the water. One is that the... Israelites were delivered out of their bondage. And the other thing that happened was the forces of Pharaoh, representing Satan, were drowned and destroyed by the very same water. So we see two things happening here uh, through the water. Now, I was asked a question this week uh, by, uh, by, by a friend um, is it possible that the Christians borrowed the idea of baptism from some other religious group? And I've heard this from time to time. People make a claim. Well, the Christians borrowed baptism from some other uh, religious group like the, uh, the Mandeans, perhaps, or a pagan mystery religion uh, uh, from Greece or, or Persia or some other part of the world. But actually, we see in this story that 
that the Christian teaching and baptism wasn't borrowed from some pagan or other religion. It's rooted right in the story of the Exodus 1,400 years beforehand. And actually, you can go even further back than that to the story of Noah, because in uh, 1 Peter 3, 21, it talks, 20 and 21, it talks about the water in Noah's flood being a type or foreshadowing of Christian baptism. Peter points that out. So baptism is part of God's original plan. This is how we get out of Egypt. And I want to share with you, um, in closing, some thoughts from Gregory of Nyssa, a work called The Life of Moses. So I was, I got, I was, uh, when I was many years ago in Albania, I got into a discussion with a teacher at an Orthodox seminary in Albania, in a village in Albania. And I said, you know, I teach a lot on Moses. Is there anything that you're aware of in terms of early church writings that that would give me more insights into Moses from early Christian writings I might not be aware of? And he said, actually, there's a there's a recent translated work by Gregory of Nyssa called The Life of Moses. And Gregory of Nyssa lived from 335 to 395. And ironically, the, the translation is made by... Um, uh, Everett Ferguson, who is a, a famous scholar in the in the Church of Christ from a background similar to my own. So, but there was a so Gregory of Nyssa talks about the story of the Exodus, and I want to share with you some of the things that he said about this particular part of the story, just for your consideration. And he talks about the cloud, and he also talks about the water, and and how these things fit together and are foreshadowing. He explains a little more than Paul did, and this is he's not writing under inspiration, but think about what he says, see if it makes sense. So this, he says, Gregory says here, in this crossing, the cloud serves as guide. Those before us interpreted the cloud well as the grace of the Holy Spirit, who guides toward the good those who are worthy. Whoever follows him passes through the water since the guide makes a way through it for him. In this way, he is safely led to freedom, and the one who pursues him to bring him into bondage is destroyed in the water. No one who hears this should be ignorant of the mystery of the water. He who has gone down into it with the army of the enemy emerges alone, leaving the enemy's army drowning in the water. For who does not know that the Egyptian army, those horses, chariots, their drivers, archers, slingers, heavily armed soldiers, and the rest of the crowd in the enemy's line of battle are the various passions of the soul by which man is enslaved. For the undisciplined intellectual drives and sensual impulses to pleasure, sorrow, and covetousness are indistinguishable from the aforementioned army. He continues, If anyone wishes to clarify the figure, this lays it bare. Those who pass through the mystical water in baptism must put to death in the water the whole phalanx of evil, such as covetousness, unbridled desire, rapacious thinking, the passions of conceit, arrogance, wild impulse, 
wrath, anger, malice, envy, and all such things. Since the passions naturally pursue our nature, we must put to death in the water both the base movements of the mind and the acts that issue from them. He continues, the law gives us to understand by this that no remnant of evil should mix with the subsequent life. Rather, we should make a totally new beginning in life after these things, breaking the continuity with evil by a radical change for the better. Thus also he means here that after we have drowned the whole Egyptian person, that is every form of evil, in the saving baptism, we emerge alone dragging along nothing foreign in our subsequent life. This is what we hear through the history, which says that in the same water the enemy and the friend are distinguished by life and death, the enemy being destroyed and the friend given life. Many of those who received the mystical baptism in ignorance of the commandments of the law mix the bad leaven of the old life with the new, Even after crossing the water, they bring along the Egyptian army, which still lives with them and their doings. And I'll close with one more quote from him. He says, For the uncontrolled passion is a fierce and raging master to servile reasoning, tormenting it with pleasures as though they were scourges. Covetousness is another such master who provides no relief to the bondsman. But even if in bondage, If the one in bondage should slave in subservience to the commands of the master and acquire for him what he desires, the servant is always driven on to more. And all the other things which are performed by evil are so many tyrants and masters. If someone should still serve them, even if he should happen to have passed through the water, according to my thinking, he has not at all touched the mystical water whose function is to destroy the evil tyrants. So this is... This is the picture here, and it it helps me to get a deeper appreciation for baptism. Not only is baptism washing my sins away and saving me, but baptism is drowning the forces of Satan and evil. And to see the forces of evil that are pursuing us for what they really are, to see the forces of evil who want to enslave us with our passions, and that Satan masquerades as the great liberator and the great friend. We should see him just like Pharaoh as an enslaver and to see the forces that he uses that are really out to enslave us and to control us. And that God is the one who wants to liberate us. Uh, so uh, just another, another reminder, God is revealing wonderful things that he's going to be doing. Through baptism, I got a, we got a question in, on our, our uh, at our a website in the Middle East about somebody uh, wrote in and said, "How do I become a Christian?" And uh, many different groups would answer that question differently. But uh, the the answer that we provided was basically, "There's only one way out of Egypt, the land of bondage, and it's going through the water." That's part of the answer. We have to repent. We have to leave the old sins behind and and emerge alone as a new life through the saving waters of baptism. Um, And I'll close with one last insight. Eusebius mentioned in uh, his discussion in Proof of the Gospel, Book 3, that uh, in, in, in the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, where God says, I will send 
a prophet like you, like Moses from among your brothers, that Eusebius said, whenever we look at the life of Moses, we will see similar miracles being done by Jesus, only greater. So the miracles of Moses foreshadow the miracle of Jesus, but Jesus does the same, very similar thing, but in even a more spectacular way. And one of the things that Eusebius pointed out in connection with this, he said, Moses had an unusual way to cross water. And you think about that, and he brought other people along with him. He crossed the water by uh, having a wall of water on each side and walking through the middle of the water. But he says Jesus has an even more glorious and spectacular way of crossing the water. He walks on the top of it, and he called Peter to come along with him. So amen, and we'll continue on the other side of the of the sea in our next uh, lesson